MHU's podcast, Does Prayer Work? This is episode seven, and today Justin is going to be leading us in a discussion of the relationship between science and prayer, and we're going to be looking at the question of whether science has disproved the effectiveness of petitionary prayer. Justin, does science pose any specific problems for the doctrine that petitionary prayer works? Yeah, so I think that there are two main ways in when, in which one might think that science poses some kind of a challenge to the belief that prayer is effective. The first is um, that there have been some empirical studies that have been conducted to try to test whether prayer works, and typically, maybe even always, the people conducting those studies uh, end up concluding that the studies disconfirm the hypothesis, as it is in those contexts, that prayer works. Um, so that's one kind of challenge that science poses to petitionary prayer. Another kind of challenge has to do with uh, miracles. And it has to do with whether, uh, in order for prayer to work, that would require there to be certain kinds of miraculous intervention in the world, which might be thought to be problematic on scientific grounds. Um, so you mentioned statistical um, studies. So what are those and uh, what should we be making of them? Yeah, so um, I think that the best way to go here is just to kind of proceed by example. So I want to take a look at a couple of studies that have been conducted, and, and let's just think about what we should conclude from what they found. So one study that is um, seems fairly well known is called the Benson Study, and it was conducted in 2006, um, or it was published in 2006. And uh, a philosopher named Richard Swinburne has a short uh, piece kind of responding to this study in the journal Science and Theology News. And uh, that piece begins with, I think, a nice little paragraph summary, or at least the version of it that is posted online now. It has a nice little paragraph summary of the Benson study and what exactly, you know, it, it consisted in and what results were found. So I just want to read that paragraph for you. Here it is. Quote, a large-scale statistical study purporting to show whether petitionary prayer for recovery from illness has any effect, the Benson study, was published in April 2006. Patients who had had coronary artery bypass graft surgery at six U.S. hospitals were randomly assigned to one of three patient groups. One patient group received intercessory prayer for an uncomplicated recovery, after being informed that they may or may not receive prayer. One patient group did not receive prayer after being so informed. And one patient group received prayer after being informed that they would receive prayer. Individuals were prayed for by their first names only, and their identity was not known to those praying. Those praying belonged to one of three Christian groups. Complications occurred to 52% of the first patient group, to 51% of the second patient group, and to 59% of the third group. The virtually identical figures for the first and second group, both of whom were uncertain whether they would receive prayer, were regarded as a negative result, showing that intercessory prayer has no effect. 
the figure for the third group was regarded as a statistical freak. Okay, so let's ignore the statistical freak and just focus on those two groups that were told that they might or might not be prayed for. Uh, one of them was prayed for, one of them wasn't, but the rates of complication following surgery for the two groups were almost exactly the same. And so the people conducting the study inferred that petitionary prayer doesn't work. Well, what should we make of that inference? I mean, so let's, let's grant that all the details about the study, how it was conducted, what data was collected, have been correctly reported. Is the inference that therefore prayer doesn't work... Uh, is that a good inference? Well, I think that there are uh, some problems with that inference. Uh, let me just highlight two of them. One major problem, and this one I saw highlighted by Tim McGrew on social media once, is that there actually wasn't a true control group in this study. So, I mean, clearly they were trying to have a control group, right? We had these two groups, one of which was prayed for, one of which wasn't. But actually, all that the experimenters could control was whether or not the prayers participating in their study prayed for, you know, this group or that group or not. But what McGrew points out is that, look, there are religious people around the world who regularly pray for everyone around the world who needs healing. And in fact, he points out that it's built into the liturgy in certain religious traditions to pray on a regular basis certain prayers, which include petitions on behalf of everyone around the world who needs healing. So it's just false that of these two groups, one of them did not receive prayer. Um, at least indirectly, both groups received some prayer. So that may be one problem with this study or with the interpretation of the study that was offered. Another sort of problem is this, um, and this is the problem that Swinburne highlights in his um, short response piece. Uh, you might think, and Swinburne does think, that the prayer is offered in the context of an empirical test to see whether prayer really works. Um, are likely to be ignored by God, even if the same sort of prayers would not typically be ignored by God outside of that context. Why? Well, because there's something artificial or insincere about prayers which are often or which are offered in the context of like a test to see whether God uh, really answers prayer. Swinburne gives a helpful analogy here. He says, "Suppose that I'm a rich man who sometimes gives sums of money to worthy causes." that I'm very well informed and I know just how useful or not different gifts would be. I receive many letters asking me to give such gifts. Some foundation wants to know if there is any point in people writing letters to me. Do they make any difference to whether I give money to this cause or that? So the foundation commissions a study. Many people are enrolled to write letters to me on behalf of several causes rather than others in order to see whether subsequently I give more to those causes rather than to the other causes. In fact, let us suppose, I am normally moved by such letters. I think that the fact that many people take the trouble to write to me on behalf of some cause about which they care a lot is a reason for giving to that cause. But I now discover why I am suddenly bombarded with a stream of letters on behalf of certain causes, and I realize that on this occasion, unlike on other occasions, the letter writers have no deep concern for the causes for which they write. So, of course, on this occasion, I pay no attention to the letters. 
Okay, so that was Swinburne's analogy, and the, the thought is supposed to be like the case with God and a scientific experiment to test prayer is sort of similar. You might think God would just choose to ignore the prayers offered in that context because of their insincerity or something to that effect. So I think that there's at least two major problems with the Benson study, and those were the two. It does feel very um, insincere to test God that way. Yeah. It, yeah, it doesn't resonate with me at all. I don't know how I would trust um, the findings of any study that tried to quantify things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I guess if I was going to offer a defense for the Benson study, it would be to say there what what it, they actually say is not that uh, we can conclude from the study that prayer doesn't work, but just that the study shows a negative result. That's their wording, right? Well, uh, in the description I read, which I think is Swinburne's, uh, it was regarded as a negative result, and that's in quotation marks, showing that intercessory prayer has no effect. Okay, okay. So uh, it'd be interesting to look at what exactly they, they say, say is the yeah. case. Uh, my guess is is that they might... Well, I would hope that they would have more guarded language with respect to their conclusion. Yeah. Uh, I mean, even if... So I think you're... Your points as to the design of the experiment are on, and it's not clear that this does demonstrate even any kind of disconfirmation of the of the thesis that petitionary prayer works. But even if it did, it would just be a sort of some. It would provide some negative evidence. It wouldn't be a kind of. Benson owns the Christians. Traditionary <laughs> prayer is proven not to work. Kind of, kind of situation, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, hope, hopefully, that's not what they were trying to claim. Uh-huh. Um, so yeah. So, are there any other kinds of empirical studies on prayer? Yeah. So I think we should look at another example um, because it's, I think, importantly different than the Benson study. So in the case of the Benson study, there was actually an experiment that was set up mm-hmm. to try to test whether prayer works. But there's another kind of empirical study of prayer that one can conduct, and one that was famously conducted by a fellow named Francis Galton in the 19th century. And what he did was he actually just went back into records of um, information that had been kept for totally independent reasons to look for statistical evidence of whether prayer seems to be effective or not. So... um, for example, one, th- one thing he did was this. He reasoned that, well, look, the sovereigns of various nations uh, have all kinds of people praying for them all the time. And so you might expect, you know, and, and, and among the things that are going to be prayed for will be like longevity. And so you might expect that sovereigns uh, will live longer on average than the typical person with all that prayer coming their way more than the typical person. And so he went into historical records to just try to see, all right, do, in fact, the sovereigns of various nations tend to live longer than the typical person? Other examples, he, he reasoned that, well, clergy, they probably pray on a very regular basis, including presumably prayer for what he calls temporal goods, which would be like health and longevity. And so he wanted to know, well, look, do clergy tend to live any longer on average than the typical person. Uh, He reasoned similarly about missionaries and about infants in religious families. He he figured, well, look, you know, in religious families, 
uh, the parents are more likely to pray for their sick infants, and so you might expect infant mortality rates to be lower in religious families than in just any, you know, in families more generally, if in fact prayer works. And so he went into, you know, various records of data about, like, you know, people dying and stuff, and, and basically concluded that um, it looks like a prayer doesn't have any effect on these things. The, the, there's not any statistically significant evidence of that. Well, what should we make of that? Um, is Galton right? Well, I think there are a lot of problems with Galton's study. Some of them are small problems. Some of them are big problems. Let me uh, identify those problems. Um, one problem that Vincent Brumer in his book, What Are We Doing When We Pray, highlights is that it's actually the case that uh, Galton may have been working with too small of a sample in his uh, study. So Brumer writes, one might point out that Galton bases his statistical generalizations on far too small a number of cases. For example, he bases his claim that prayers for sovereigns are futile on statistics about the longevity of only 97 members of royal houses between 1758 and 1843. So it's a fairly limited pool of, of sovereigns out of like all the sovereigns in the history of the world. Um, moreover, in addition to the, that problem, there's a problem about isolating the effect of prayer from other things that might affect the data. So uh, uh, Brumer quotes um, one of Galton's critics as uh, highlighting this problem. And an example that's given in Brumer's book is, um, well, maybe the effect of petitionary prayer on the longevity of sovereigns, if there is any such effect, is just sort of invisible because it's kind of canceled out by some contrary effect. And so he points out that, um, look, in, in, in the relevant period of time, sovereigns would have had the most access to the best medical care, but the best medical care was often harmful. And so it could be that the reason that they're living about the same length as everybody else is because the prayer has a positive effect on their longevity, and it's kind of canceled out by the negative effect of their accessibility to these harmful medical procedures. <laughs> and of course, I mean, I don't know if that's true or not, but at any rate, the point is just that, well, if you're just going to try to look at statistics to see whether prayer is working, you know, it's going to be a challenge to try to find patterns which are going to show you only the effect of the prayer and not, you know, a whole bunch of things coming together. Another sort of problem, I think, with Galton's study is he doesn't distinguish between types of prayer. We mentioned in an earlier episode that in the book of James, we're told that God doesn't tend to answer prayers with bad motivations. So if you want to test whether prayer works, presumably what you want to do is not isolate the, you know, the group of people who pray a lot, but the people who pray a lot with good motivations. And that's going to be challenging to do. Um, similar sort of problem, uh, like take the case of the, uh, the clergy, right? So Galton just sort of assumes that these clergy, first of all, pray more than the average person, which actually isn't obvious. But secondly, that they're going to be praying, among other things, for temporal goods like health and longevity. 
But you might think that someone who is a more fervent prayer, a more religious person in some sense, is actually going to be more likely to focus their prayers on spiritual things rather than on temporal goods. Maybe. I don't know. Or you might think that that sort of person would be more likely to qualify their prayers with something like a not my will but yours be done. And that just makes it really difficult to test empirically whether the prayer is effective. Yeah, you can think back to uh, Elaine's episode on the prayer life of Paul and what Paul models in his prayers. And one of her points was that Paul, in his uh, letters, n- almost never prays or, or even mentions praying for himself. And his pr- what the kinds of prayers that he models are not prayers for temporal goods. They're prayers for spiritual goods. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are still other problems. Uh, I think actually maybe the most devastating problem for Galton's approach is this. So for a long time, philosophers and theologians have talked about this phenomenon that's come to be called divine hiddenness. And what divine hiddenness is, is it's just this fact that God's existence is not flat-out obvious, or at least not flat-out obvious to everyone. There's a certain respect in which God is hidden. And and, um, a lot of the discussion about God's hiddenness has been about whether there are good reasons for God to, you know, hide, quote-unquote, in the way that God does, and what those reasons might be. And I don't want to get into all that. That's really a whole subject in its own right. But the point I want to make is this. Supposing God does have a good reason for being hidden in the way in which God is, for it to be the case that God's existence isn't just flat-out obvious to everyone. That reason might extend to scientific tests of prayer. It might be that whatever reason that God has for being hidden, that's a reason for God to make sure that we can't just confirm that prayer works by doing a scientific experiment. Okay. Now, suppose that's right. Well, it seems to me there are various ways you can imagine that God might be able to hide the effects of prayer from scientific experiments. So, for example, uh, one way God could do this is Suppose that, you know, some, someone prays for some benefit, and suppose that God decides God wants to answer that prayer. Well, maybe God doesn't simply give that sort of benefit to the person who prayed for it, but also gives it to a bunch of other people to sort of even out the statistics. And that would actually be really good, because it would mean that the effective prayers of religious people don't merely benefit themselves or the people they're praying for, but also benefit a whole bunch of other people that may not have even been thinking about. That would be one way that God could kind of hide the effect of prayer. Similarly, um, well, or maybe not similarly, but another uh, approach that God could take to try and hide the effect of prayer would be um, God could just, you know, look into the future or use God's counterfactual knowledge about, like, what people are, would do in various circumstances to predict when various studies of prayer are going to be conducted and where they're going to look for evidence and so forth. And then God can just make sure that when God answers prayers, God kind of works around where all the studies are going to be conducted, right? Even these Galton-type studies that just go back into, you know, old records. If God knows that Galton's going to do that, then God can kind of be careful about the pattern of prayer answering that God proceeds in order to maintain 
uh, divine hiddenness. Anyway, so that's one, I think, fundamental uh, flaw with Galton's study is that he assumes that um, God doesn't have a good reason for hiding the effects of prayer from statistical or like scientific sorts of inquiry. Okay. Um, okay, so earlier you, you mentioned um, miraculous intervention. Uh, what is that and why should we care? Right, yeah. So this is another kind of worry that someone might have about petitionary prayer that might seem like a scientific or a quasi-scientific sort of worry. Uh, the idea is that petitionary prayer might require miraculous intervention of a sort that doesn't seem scientifically credible or respectable. So let me try to explain why that's the case. Uh, we've talked in earlier episodes about, like, under what conditions would something count as an answer to prayer? And one of the conditions that we've talked about is that it seems like it would have to be something that wasn't just going to happen anyway, even if you didn't pray for it. Um, but suppose that's true. Suppose it's true that for something to count as an answer to prayer, it has to be something that wasn't going to happen anyway. Rather, it only happened because God decided to intervene and make it happen when you asked God to bring it about. Well, now what, we, what that seems to mean is that the answer to prayer is something that wasn't just going to be, happen naturally. And instead, uh, the only reason things in the natural world went that way was due to the intervention by a supernatural agent. And that sounds like a miracle. In fact, in one of their papers, Tim and Lydia McGrew basically give that account as a rough-and-ready definition of a miracle. It's when something happens in the natural world that wouldn't have happened if there hadn't been an intervention from, like, a, a supernatural agent outside the natural world. So it might seem like, well, look, in order for God to answer any prayer, that's going to involve God performing some kind of miracle. Now, some people will already right there be worried because they'll think that just the very idea of there being any actual miracles is not scientifically credible. Um, and that's a worry that I'm not going to address today because it's a really a whole other subject in its own right and we don't have time to get into that. Instead, I want to focus on a problem that's more specifically about prayer and not just about miracles in general. And that problem is this. In order for God to be answering prayers on a regular basis, it seems like God has to be miraculously intervening in the world on a regular basis. It's like there have to be miracles happening all the time. And that might be worrying for this reason. You might think, look, in our modern scientific age, we know the world is run by laws of nature, and even those of us who think, yeah, there are some miracles here and there, we tend to think that they're rare that most events conform to the laws of nature as they've been so uh, you know, carefully described by scientists. Um, and, and it's just, we don't live in a world where miracles happen all the time. Let me give you a couple of reasons to think that that's a plausible thought. So for one thing, we don't witness events very often that we would take to be miracles. Uh, so think about just an ordinary day in your life. And imagine all of the tiny little events that make up that day. You know, brushing your teeth in the morning, every step you take, every word you say, every word you hear someone else say, right? Like every tiny little thing. The vast majority of those events in any ordinary day are obviously just ordinary events that fit with the laws of nature as we know them. 
They're not even apparently miracles. Now, there's disagreement among Christians as to, like, well, how common or rare are miracles, um, but I think that we can all agree that they're relatively rare compared to events that are just ordinary, non-miraculous events. And so, in, in one sense, the world that we see appears to be a world where miracles don't happen all the time. But more than that, even when we're reasoning about the events in the world that we don't actually see, we reason as though miracles are extremely rare. So, for example, suppose I find a letter in my mailbox, and you ask me, well, how'd that letter get in there? I don't know why you would ask me that, but suppose you did. <laughs> then I might say, well, the mail person put it in there. Well, suppose you say, well, the usual mail person has been out sick for the past week. Then I might say, well, you know, probably one of their colleagues put it in there. Here's a thought, though, that will not even cross my mind. That, oh, well, maybe God just created it out of nothing in that mailbox. I wouldn't, that's I, I, not a, an option that I would, in an ordinary circumstances, take seriously or probably not even think of. And I think that what that suggests is that we just don't expect miracles to happen all the time. We expect that, for the most part, the world operates in this ordinary, predictable, law-like way, and miracles, if they happen at all, and of course as Christians we think they do happen sometimes, are rare. Okay, so there's a tension here. On the one hand, we've seen some reason to think that petitionary prayer requires there to be miracles happening all the time. Because God has to intervene to perform a miracle anytime God wants to answer a prayer. And we think God answers prayers a lot. On the other hand, we think that there's some empirical evidence that miracles don't happen all the time. It just doesn't seem like the sort of world that we live in. So that's the problem. Okay, so one way you might resolve this problem would be to deny the claim that God's answering prayer actually requires a miraculous intervention? Yeah. So what, do we, what should we think about that? Does it require miraculous intervention? Right. So I think it, it does not. And okay. I think there is more than one way to make this work. So let me give you two, two ways of, of taking this road. So William Lane Craig has suggested a model of uh, prayer that goes like this. Instead of God, like, waiting for someone to offer a prayer and then intervening in the world at that point to answer the prayer, maybe what God does is that God looks into the future uh, to see what we're going to pray for in the future or considers God's knowledge of what we would pray for in various circumstances and then just decides, okay, I'm going to want to answer that prayer and so sets up the world from the very beginning so that as things naturally unfold, the prayers that God wants to answer will get answered. So right. you get a little bit of a backwards explanation or yes. counterfactual explanation? Yeah, so if you remember back our episode, prayer episode three on prayer for the past, we talked in detail about some ways of trying to understand how God might be able to answer prayers for the past, for things that have already happened. This is a similar idea. Although here, it's just any sort of prayer. It doesn't matter whether it's a prayer for the past or the future. That doesn't matter. Um, the idea is just that God sets up the world in such a way that uh, certain prayers are going to be answered, maybe after they're prayed for, maybe before. Um, but he's, God sets up the world that way from the beginning instead of intervening in the world later to make the prayer happen. Mm -hmm. All right, so that's one approach that you could take. 
Another approach that you could take, and it's compatible with this one, I think, uh, provided that you endorse certain claims about God's knowledge, uh, is an approach which rests on the idea that the universe is not deterministic. So mostly because of the advent of quantum mechanics, a lot of philosophers and scientists these days think that the universe is not a deterministic universe. And what that means is just that even given everything that has happened in the past and everything that's happening now and all the laws of nature, there's still multiple ways that the future could go. And it's to some extent a matter of chance which way it's going to go. Let's suppose that that's right. Suppose the world really is like that. Well, then you might imagine a scenario like this one. Let's say that there's a certain particle that has a 50% chance of swerving to the left and a 50% chance of swerving to the right in like the next instant. Okay. And then let's suppose if it swerves to the left, then due to some kind of butterfly effect, that's going to cause me to, uh, you know, continue to have this illness that I have that I want to be healed from. But if it swerves to the right, then due to some kind of butterfly effect, that will cause me to recover from this illness that I'm suffering from. Okay, so given the way the world is right now, then there's a 50% chance that I'll get better and a 50% chance that I won't, and it all just depends on the way this particle swerves. Now suppose I pray to God that uh, God heals me from this sickness, and suppose God decides that God wants to answer that prayer. Well, then maybe God does this. God just makes sure that that particle swerves right instead of left. And, and so what would ordinarily have been just a 50-50 chance of the particle swerving right, given God's intervention, now becomes a 100% chance that the particle swerves right. Now, I think that this case is interesting because of the following two facts. First, it seems to me like in that case, God answered my prayer. Because God intervened in the world in some sense and made something happen that there was a decent chance might not have happened. Might have happened on its own, but it might not have. There's a decent chance it wouldn't. And God did that in response to my asking God to intervene in something like that way. I think that that counts as an answer to prayer. But it's also arguably not a miraculous intervention in the world because the only thing God did in making something happen in the world is God made something happen that had a decent chance of happening anyway, given the laws of nature and the past and so on. And so at any rate, if it is a sort of miracle, it's not one of the really robust interventionary kinds of miracles um, of the sort that are like the, clearly the most worrisome in this context. Okay, so um, that's another way in which you might imagine God answering prayers uh, without its requiring God to perform miraculous interventions all the time. Yeah, so the maybe a simple way of putting that is it, is it allows God to make a difference without breaking the laws of nature. Yeah, so that's one way of putting it. It's a little bit tricky, though, because a lot of theologians and philosophers, and I'm with them on this, would say that miracles... Um, not all miracles are, in fact, like violations of the laws of nature. Uh-huh. Uh, and so it gets a little bit fuzzy, like maybe this would still count as a miracle. But, yeah, I mean, you're, roughly what you said is, is the thought, I guess. Yeah. So are there other um, ways that we can think about this problem of there not being that many miracles? Yeah. 
Um, so suppose that you're convinced, I think this is false, but suppose you're convinced that in order for God to answer a prayer, there has to be a miraculous intervention in the world. That's just the only way for it to work. There are still other ways you can try to block this, this argument or solve this problem. Um, one thought that I had, though I haven't really had time to develop it at all, is maybe God can answer multiple prayers with just one miraculous intervention. If God just moves just the right particle in just the right way, maybe one tiny little miraculous intervention can cause like the answer to a whole bunch of prayers. So that you could have God answering a ton of prayers with only a few miraculous interventions. And then another approach is just to say, well, look, suppose that the, um, suppose we really, we, uh, that answering prayers a lot requires a lot of miracles. Well, we could concede that we've got inductive empirical evidence that there aren't lots of miracles going on, and then just say, but we've also got some evidence, and maybe some really strong evidence, that God answers prayers a lot. Evidence from Scripture, perhaps, where we also take ourselves to have really good reason to trust Scripture. And if that's the case, then maybe the evidence for prayer just overwhelms or outweighs the evidence that miracles don't happen a lot. And what we should do is we should just say they do. They're subtle. They're hidden. We don't see these little interventions that God does to answer prayer, but we've got good reason to think that they're there after all. That's another approach that you could do. And I think that between those options, this is really not a very serious problem. Yeah, I'm inclined to say the same thing. Part of it, I think, might almost come down to a verbal issue on what we mean by miracle. Yeah. And if we mean uh, something just like God doing something, then yeah, (laughs) miracles happen all the time. (laughs) And if we mean something a lot more heavyweight, like God... Uh, God uh, doing something that's prohibited by the laws of nature or bringing about some event that wouldn't have happened given the laws of nature. I don't know how you want to put it, but something a lot more uh, heavyweight like that, then it seems like they don't happen as often. And moreover, they wouldn't have to for prayer to be answered And they wouldn't have to for prayer to be answered a lot. And so, yeah, either way... It seems like this is not a serious problem, mm-hmm. and yeah, and w- and what you should say about it just depends maybe on what you mean by miracle, right? Mm-hmm.